Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to Madison's Notes, the official podcast of Princeton University's James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. I'm your host, Annika Nordquist. Today's guest is a current Garwood Visiting Fellow here with us at the Madison Program, Professor Mark David Hall, who's the Herbert Hoover Distinguished Professor of Politics at George Fox University. We are so excited that he's just published a book, Proclaim Liberty Throughout All the Land, How Christianity Has Advanced Freedom and Equality for All Americans. This is a really fascinating book because not only does it argue that Christianity is responsible for advancing liberty and equality in American history, but it also goes through a lot of really common bones people today have to pick with the founding, like whether the War of Independence was justified, what we ought to think about the fact that the founders were slaveholders, whether the founders were religious. So during this conversation, we discuss all of those topics. And I play a little bit of devil's advocate. So I really hope that you enjoy this lively discussion that we had. And with no further ado, let's dig in. Mark, welcome to the show. It's such a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for having me, Hanukkah. So I'm a July 4th baby. I want to start off talking about the War of Independence, um, because when you talk about uh, the reasons for the American Revolution, that struck me as kind of an unusual inclusion in your book. I think people have kind of had the stereotypes that the Puritans are puritanical. It's been an insult for a long time and that people have been angry about the founders being slaveholders for a long time. But the War of Independence, I, it's surprising to me, I guess, that this debate has come to the surface so much recently, where before I think people sort of took it for granted. So talk to me a little bit about the inclusion of that in your book. Sure. So you're talking about chapter three, of course, was yeah. a war for American independence, a biblical and a just war. And of course, it's probably fair to say that primarily only Christians are going to be concerned about the question, was it a biblical war? Yeah. Although hopefully more broadly, we should all be concerned about the question, was it a just war? Of course, in the 18th century, this was hotly debated, right? The mm-hmm. number of loyalists um, preached sermons. They made arguments that, no, Christians don't get to rebel against the uh, civil authority. Rebellion is always wrong. Read Romans 13. Yeah. Jonathan Boucher, or Boucher, I'm not sure how you say his name, wrote a great <laughs> sermon that I always teach when I teach American political thought. And then you had patriot preachers that were arguing that, no, 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 this is a biblical war. Even if you believe that active resistance to tyrannical authority, also known as rebellion, is biblically justifiable, you still have the question, were the evils that were being done by the Crown and Parliament great enough to justify revolution? So you're probably right, throughout the 19th and most of the 20th century, this was not hotly debated. Beginning in the late 70s, early 80s, you do have some Christian historians who weigh in. Mark Knoll, George Marsden, Nathan Hatch, in the search for Christian America addressed the question. And they kind of hem and haw, but it's pretty clear they think it was both unbiblical and unjust. Since then, a few other Christian historians and political scientists have weighed in throughout the 90s into the 21st century almost all of them had, have said, no, it's not biblical, mm-hmm. and it was not a just war. And so I'm pushing back against that. I, I do have one friend, Eric Patterson, who takes the same position I take, but generally the weight of authority is on the other other side, that it was not a biblical war, that it was not a just war. Well, I guess I want to push a little because it seems like, I mean, you're sort of talking about academic debates, but the sense that there was something unjust in the founding has very much trickled down and become 
a popular debate. Can you talk a little bit about the reasons that might be? And I I guess I wonder, do you think that the reasons why there's kind of a popular resistance to it are the same as the reasons a lot of academics or theologians have had resistance to it? Yeah, I'm not Certainly there's a lot of pushback against America's founders. I yeah. think a whole lot of that is focused on race and slavery, Definitely. that they were hypocrites. They um, agreed to the Declaration of Independence, but they owned slaves. They didn't um, end slavery. They, they said all men are created equal, but women certainly weren't. I think that's where a lot of the focus is. You do have a few folks who push back against the justice of mm-hmm. the war for American independence. But I do think it is more of an academic debate. I think it is an important debate. I think we there's a moral imperative to think in a morally serious way about when a nation goes to war. Mm-hmm. And if we're going to do this, it's a useful exercise to look at America's past wars, a war for American independence, war of 1812, Spanish-American war up to the present day, and evaluate these from the just war tradition. And so I think that's a useful enterprise, and it's an enterprise that I've tried to stimulate. I, I edited a book, America and the Just War Tradition, co-edited a few years ago. And part of our hope is to get students and practitioners to be thinking about these questions. So the next time the nation heads toward armed conflict, we're thinking, again, in a morally serious way about whether or not um, we should enter into a conflict. Hmm. So then are you suggesting that there are kind of parallels between the American War for Independence and geopolitical challenges currently? Not necessarily. And that, that really is kind of an outlier because it was a, a rebellion, right? right. A, a civil war, whereas most of America's wars aren't that right. sort of war, right? We have to decide what we're going to do about Great Britain's depredations on American shipping mm. or what we should do about, you know, Texas's claim to independence or what we should do with respect to a great war in Europe or what we should do in response to the Japanese bombing of Pearl Harbor. So usually wars are between two nations in the modern era, nation states. Yeah. And I'd be careful to say we can draw easy parallels. And certainly there's almost no parallel between the war for American independence and what America should do with respect to the Ukraine or something like that. Not at all. Um, But I still think it's a useful exercise to be thinking about these sorts of questions and looking at them and discussing them and debating them. Okay. Uh, Talk to me a little bit about, though, because I think part of the reason people feel as though it it wouldn't have been a a just conflict is because the taxation element is is so central in the way that it's taught. And people think this was just a dispute about taxes, you know, it would be like you like being angry at the IRS or something like that. How much truth is there in that kind of way that the narrative has been portrayed in classrooms? Do you think that there's a part of the story that's missing? Yeah, thank you. That's a great question. So in the just war tradition, there's a, a, a sort of a series of questions one goes through in thinking about whether or not a nation should go to war, or I guess in this case, whether part of a nation should actively resist a tyrannical authority. And the most mm-hmm. obvious question is, is there a just cause? Now, oftentimes in your traditional wars where one nation attacks the other, when Jap- J- Japan bombs Pearl Harbor, we can say, yeah, self-defense is a just cause. We have a right to respond. In this case, you don't really have that sort of equivalent. And so the arguments of the patriots are that the crown and parliament were acting in very unconstitutional ways, in very unjust ways. But as you suggested, you can probably point to a dozen people who are upset about the IRS or about a particular administrative policy. And so no one says you get to resist civil authority because you're unhappy with some sort of decision, right? Yeah. That you should do other things. You should elect new representatives. You should petition the government and this sort of thing. 
And so in the American context, it did center on taxation, uh, beginning in 1764, where Parliament for the first time started levying taxes on Americans to raise revenue. According to the Americans, Parliament has absolutely no authority to do this. You can trace this back to the Magna Carta, no taxation without representation. But you know your history, and you know that Americans didn't pick up their muskets and start shooting in 1764 or in 1765 with the Stamp Act or in 1766 with the Declaratory Act. Instead, they petitioned and they remonstrated and they boycotted. And it really wasn't until after almost 10 years of disputes back and forth when the British sent troops to seize American arms at Lexington and Concord that shots were, were, were exchanged. So I, w- I would contend, and what I contend in the book, is that even though the taxes were light, they were completely unconstitutional. Hmm. And so the patriots were right to be concerned. The analogy— well, b- Back yeah. up a little bit. How can it be unconstitutional if we didn't have a constitution yet? Well, oh, I'm sorry. From the, <laughs> we're part of the British Empire, right? Yeah. So the and, British kind of common law then? The or? British— the, the, We talk about the British having a constitution, even though they don't Mm, have a single written document. So you have the Magna Carta, the Declaration of Rights, and that sort of thing. Right. And so it's an unwritten constitution. And so from the American perspective and from the perspective of some British leaders, William Pett, Edmund Burke and others, um, Parliament has no right to do what it's doing. Now, there had been a shift of thought in England, thanks to Blackstone and others. And so I think some of the members of Parliament thought they they, they were, in fact, loving constitutional taxes. And so there was a grave disconnect in that respect. But but still, I think the principle is important. If if Mm. Canada were to lay a very very small tax on each American citizen, obviously American citizens shouldn't pay that tax, right? Because they clearly have no authority to do so. And if we were, in fact, to pay those taxes, you could imagine Canada loving greater and greater and greater taxes, right? Mm. And so there's a principled reason for resisting even what might seem to be a minor incursion on on, on constitutional liberties. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about, because you pointed to the fact that race and slavery are such a reason, in addition, why people push against um, push against the founding and whether or not the founding was justified. I mean, the 1619 Project goes an even more radical step and suggests the founding was at a totally different time. But even if we take kind of, let's take a very like centrist, middle of the road read here, um, I think there's frustration on both sides because the feeling is that you either have to say, the founders were completely nothing to do with slavery or the founders were deeply, completely complicit. How do you address the fact that in a way kind of both are true, you know? No, that's right. And I think you outlined well the dangers of both extremes. So you're right. The 1619s claim, initial claim that America was founded in 1619, not 1776. It's just kind of ridiculous. But if you look at the 1619 Project and so many, quote unquote, mainstream historians treat Mm. the American founding, they basically argue that, for instance, authors of the Declaration of Independence were simply hypocrites. They they talked about all men being created equal, and yet they owned slaves, and they didn't do much to end slavery, and so therefore they're just simply, simply hypocrites. And in fact, white people pretty much always oppress black people and Christians always oppress everyone else. And and what I try to do is complicate that narrative. 
in part by pointing out the obvious, what everyone should recognize. A number of founders never owned a slave. In fact, most white Americans never owned a slave. Some who owned slaves voluntarily freed their slaves. A number took very concrete actions to put slavery on the road to extinction in aid of the 13 states, in the Northwest Ordinance, and elsewhere. So I think there was a great recognition among most of America's founders that slavery was highly problematic, that it needed to go away, that it was on the path to extinction. And it sure seemed to be in the 1770s and 1780s. Unfortunately, in the 1790s, Eli Whitney invented the cotton gin, and that gave slavery a new lease on life in the American South. But I try to show that, in fact, um, the founders did take a number of steps to end slavery, which is an evil, horrible, vile institution. Mm. So I don't want anyone to think I'm saying it wasn't that bad of a deal. It's it horrible. Yeah. And yet there was a recognition of this, and a number of people took a number of concrete actions to try to end this evil, vile institution. Hmm. So earlier in this season, uh, I had on a political theorist who I'm sure you're familiar with, Yoram Hazoni, who talked about slavery and the founding, and he's very anti-Thomas Jefferson. And so the way that he addressed it, kind of the, the critique, a similar critique, but from the right, was that Jefferson had fallen prey to, I think the exact phrasing he used was the twin evils of secularism and slavery, and that um, the kind of French Revolution-esque project was deeply entwined with that human subjugation and slavery and all of that, and used it kind of as an anti-some founders, but not others. Do you agree with that kind of historical assessment? How would you respond to it? Well, I did listen to that podcast, and I love your podcast, by the way. It's It's been a while. It struck me that he was more anti-Jefferson than he needed to be, and I'm not the biggest mm. fan of Jefferson, and I think the ch- charges of hypocrisy can be leveled in, in a very significant way against Thomas Jefferson, who owned slaves, who almost certainly had sex with his slaves, who lived a lavish lifestyle, which left him in a position of not being able to free almost any of his slaves. Yeah. But Jefferson was troubled by slavery. Uh, In his original draft of the Declaration of Independence, he condemned King George for keeping the colonies from abolishing the slave trade. He wrote a statute to abolish the slave trade in Virginia. He wrote a statute to abolish slavery and to Mm -hmm. ship slaves back to Africa from Virginia. That was not adopted. He drafted an early version of what became the Northwest Ordinance, where Thomas Jefferson said, after 1800, there will never be slavery in the old Northwest, in Ohio and Michigan and Indiana and Illinois. Now, why would he do that if he didn't object to slavery? As president in 1807, he urged Congress to go ahead and lay the groundwork for abolishing the international slave trade in 1808. So I think even Jefferson understood there was something wrong with slavery. Mm. He described famously slavery as as holding a wolf by the ears. You, you don't want to be in that position, but there's also great dangers in ending slavery. And he always mm-hmm. had in mind, I think, the Haitian slave rebellion, um, where, in effect, white people were wiped out in, in Haiti. So even Jefferson's a complicated figure, and I think we can be critical of him. So I, mm-hmm. I hope you don't hear any sort of moral relativism here. Yeah. But I would want to go beyond Jefferson and talk about John Jay, who freed his slaves and worked to abolish slavery in New York, or Roger Sherman, who never owned a slave and abolished or put slavery on the road to extinction in Connecticut. And there's story after story like that that should be told mm-hmm. alongside those founders who owned slaves and didn't do nearly as much as they should have to address this grave evil. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think where a lot of people struggle with it or where the pushback, especially from the left, comes from is that 
if you think the founding matters and that the way in which the country was founded still impacts us today, I mean, it seems as though the founders were kind of partially okay with slavery or okay in moderation or okay for now, but maybe not for later. I think that there's concern that if they were partially okay and we're in the same country, that makes us partially okay. How would you respond to that? Yeah, well, I think the important thing to do when thinking about the founding era, James Wilson, one of our first Supreme Court justices, um, said really any good regime needs to be drawn back to the founding principles. And and so I would attempt to say, what are those founding principles? I do this in my book, Did America Have a Christian Founding? I do it in this book as well. And I would say things far more important than, than the existence of slavery are ideas such as all humans are created in the Mago Dei, the image mm. of God. And what does this mean? That means we have the rational capacity to govern ourselves. We don't have to be governed by the whip or the rod. More and more founders were beginning to understand the fact that all humans are created in the Mago Dei means that one human shouldn't own another, which is why the founders took very important steps to put slavery on the road to extinction and why the American abolitionists continued that battle into the 19th century. The idea mm. that we should be free. And yet a, a, a constrained understanding of liberty, uh, a, a notion that liberty is not the same as licentiousness, um, the recognition that humans are sinful, and even Christians continue to struggle with the old man within. And so we need a constitutional order characterized by separation of powers and checks and balances and federalism. So these are the key American principles uh, upon which this nation was founded. And then I think we can argue, okay, we have this institution of slavery. Is this problematic? Absolutely, it's problematic because it contradicts some of the key key ideas of the American founding, the, the, the equality of all persons and the fact that we should all be free. And this is exactly in, in 1776, um, an enslaved person, Lomuel Haynes, um, wrote a pamphlet where he appealed to the Declaration of Independence. And he said, look, slavery flies in the face of this magnificent mm-hmm. document. And of course, abolitionists did this all the time, as well they should have. And so, yeah, focusing on the founding and to recognize, I think sometimes it's tempting to say, well, we've arrived at perfection in the 21st century. We haven't. The fight for liberty and equality goes on. There are still grave injustices in America today, and we need to be involved in, in, in fighting for justice. And we can't just sit back and say, well, yeah, those 18th century Americans were so bad, but we're, we're, we're perfect today. And I'm not sure how many people do that. But to whatever extent we do that, we shouldn't do that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I want to quickly circle back to your first answer, because there was one thing I really liked about it that I should have pointed out earlier, which is I think it's really valuable to be able to treat the founders as individuals, because I think there is a tendency kind of on both sides to just say the founders and lump everyone together as though it wasn't sort of a, a bigger work of individuals coming together and compromising with different views and different perspectives. You know, I think that's right, but I think we have to be careful because if we're treating them as individuals, it's easy to cherry pick someone who represents our position. So what I think is really useful is to think about the political class Mm. of Americans in the late 18th century. So to look at the constellation of people who were at the Philadelphia Convention and the Continental Congress and the ratification conventions. And when you look at them broadly, I I think you begin to see um, some patterns arise. The importance of religious liberty, the importance of equality, the disconnect between slavery and America's experiment in constitutional self-governance. And you can point to a lot of specific actions they take 
along these lines. One of my favorite little stories is in, in the Constitutional Convention, you're having a great debate over slavery, and almost no one's defending it as a positive good. And, and a number of slave owners are actually attacking it and saying mm. it's evil. And people like Oliver Ellsworth and whatnot are saying, well, we, but we don't. We can put it off because we don't have to worry about it. It's on the road to extinction. In the middle of the summer, three delegates leave Philadelphia, go to New York, where they vote on the Northwest Ordinance, mm. which prohibits the expansion of slavery into the old Northwest. One of those delegates comes back to Philadelphia. And so this just reinforces this idea. Slavery is on the way out. So we don't have to address it in the Constitution. We can be confident that it won't be around within a generation. Now, it turns out that was, uh, 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 unfortunately, it did not come to be the case in the South, but it did come to be, be the case all over the North and the Northern mm-hmm. Mid-Atlantic states, right? Eight states voluntarily either abolished slavery or put on the road to extinction in basically the Mid-Atlantic and New England, and then it never expanded into the old Northwest. So slavery seemed to be going on the way out, and people are taking very concrete steps to ensure that would happen. Yeah, it's... It's interesting, and I'm getting sort of off on a tangent here, but last question on this topic, because when you describe it like that, and I've seen the stuff that Jefferson has said about it, too, he's very evocative in, in enumerating the evils of slavery. He's really very eloquent when he speaks about it. And yet, you, when you fast forward, um, I mean, a, a lot of Southerners died defending it, you know? So it, it's just, it's somehow tough for me to, did things change in between the founding in the Civil War, or was it a class difference where the maybe sort of the more politically minded types were thinking about it more carefully and said this is an evil, but the people more economically dependent on it wanted to preserve it, or was it some combination? Or yeah, that, that's that's a very complicated question. I alluded <laughs> earlier to the invention of the cotton gin. Yeah. Basically, there's two types of cotton: long staple and short staple. And I think it's long staple that you can cultivate uh, 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 along the the coast. The invention of the cotton gin allowed for the cultivation of short staple cotton in the interior Mm. of the South, and it made it easy to separate the fibers from the seeds. And so that saved a lot of labor, but you need a lot of labor to clear the land, to plant the cotton, to harvest the cotton. And so what you see is slavery got embedded in the economy of the South in a way that had, had never been in the mm. North. And by the time you get to the 1820s, again, you got these abolitionists that are attacking, attacking, attacking slavery. And so by the time you get to the 1820s, really for the first time you have Southerners, Southern intellectuals, pushing back and saying they, they cease being defensive and they go on the offense and they mm-hmm. start saying, no, no, slavery is a good thing. It's a positive good. It benefits everyone. Now, these are nonsensical arguments or bad arguments. Sometimes these folks make biblical arguments. And I think mm-hmm. those are bad biblical arguments. But but the nature of the debate changes in, mm-hmm. uh, in the 1820s, 1830s. And I, I think the economic interest in slavery becomes so entrenched. The question of why poor whites in the South would fight um, <laughs> to defend the South is really a complicated one. Yeah. Usually they aren't fighting to protect their own self-interest. Maybe it's a sense of commitment to state or it, probably usually yeah. that is what it is. So it, it, it's complicated. Please don't hear me say sometimes people say the Civil War was not about slavery. It was about slavery. Yeah. But I don't think it's accurate to say everyone who fought for the South was fighting to protect slavery. Yeah, absolutely. I want to, because you've sort of alluded a couple times to the religious element of this, which is such an important part of both this book and your previous book. Um, Just to kick this off, um, I think it's tough because, 
you know, many of the founders famously were deists. Certainly the way I was taught in school, that was very much emphasized. And the problem with being a deist is that either side, a secular or a Christian, can either claim you or not claim you, depending on their persuasion. How Christian do you assess the founders as being? Yeah, thank you for that question. You were indisputably taught that way. So <laughs> in my previous book, I, I, the, the, what I do in my previous book is I set up each chapter with about 18 quotations. Yeah. And chapter two begins with about 18 prominent law professors, historians, and political scientists saying most of America's founders were deists or many of America's founders were deists. And they all do the exact same thing. They look real carefully at a Ben Franklin, a, mm. a Thomas Jefferson, a Thomas Paine, a John Adams, usually Madison and Washington as well. And they purport to show that these folks are deists. Now, what you can easily show is that a Franklin, a Jefferson, an Adams, a Tom Paine, obviously, are not Orthodox Christians. And yet that doesn't necessarily make them deists, as the term is usually defined. Usually mm. people define deism as uh, God exists and God creates the universe, and then he sort of walks away from it, just like a watchmaker might walk away from his from his watch. Well, if that's how we define deists, someone like a John Adams is always talking about God intervening in the affairs of men and nations. George Washington, literally all the time. Even Madison and sometimes Jefferson does as well. But what I purport to show, and I think I show this pretty well, is this is an entirely unrepresentative sample of founders. They include mm. founders that spent significant time in Europe. Ben Franklin spent over half of the last 25 years of his life in Europe. Tom Paine's from England and spends most of his life in Europe. So this is a profoundly unrepresentative sample. When you turn from these five or six elite and look at the political class of Americans, you see a class that's 50 to 75 percent Calvinist or in the reformed mm. tradition. Oh, interesting. Um, I realized it was that high Calvinist specifically. I would have thought more Anglicans. No, only about 15 percent are Anglican. Huh. But here again is where we get distorted because we think about the prominent founders. You're George right. Washington, you're James Madison, you're Thomas Jefferson, you're John Jay. Um, and these folks are uh, James Wilson, perhaps Patrick Henry, mm. uh, Monroe. They're all Anglican, right? They're uh, oftentimes most of those folks are Anglican gentlemen um, from the mm. from Virginia or the South. Yeah, so very few are. Ninety-eight percent of Americans of European descent would have defined themselves as Protestant. About two percent Roman Catholic, and about two thousand five hundred or so. Jews in North America. Now, I never say most of America's founders were Orthodox Christians because we simply don't have the records to demonstrate that. But there's no reason to think more than a tiny handful were deists, as the term is usually defined, or heretical Christians. Mm -hmm. If we want to step away from the deist label, John Adams is clearly a heretic from the position of traditional Christian orthodoxy, um, but he doesn't seem to be a deist, as the term is usually defined. And I think you can show this in a variety of ways. If, if we can step away from kind of broad theological debates, I, I'll, I'll give you an example where I think this cashes out wonderfully well. Did the founders want the separation of church and state? Did they want to build a wall mm. of separation between church and state? You can make a pretty good case that Thomas Jefferson and James Madison wanted that. If you look only at the memorial and remonstrance, the um, letter to Danbury Baptist, Madison's detached memorandum, um, the Virginia Statute for Religious Liberty, four documents. Well, that kind of paints a picture that looks like the founders wanted a, a separation of church and state. If you move beyond Jefferson and Madison to look at the founding generation, to look at what they did in the first federal Congress, what they did in each state legislature, a very different view comes into, in, into, um, 
into focus. And you see definitively the founders did not desire to build a wall of separation between church and state. Even at Madison and Jefferson did not act as if there was a wall of separation between church and state. And so, again, this is why it's so important to go beyond a tiny handful of founders that hold views that are more compatible with the views of many scholars in the 20th and the 21st century. Um, we have to look at the broader constellation of founders. Again, I'm not talking about farmers out in the field. I'm talking about the 55 men who were in the field Convention, the folks who are in the state ratifying conventions, the um, many people in the first federal Congress, when we look at them more broadly, evidence of deism, evidence of strict separationism, it vanishes. I mean, I think where I struggle is you say a tiny handful, but like Jefferson and Madison were huge players in writing all the founding documents. And in no other scenario would I say we can just discount James Madison's opinion. Why kind of weighing metric? do you have or are you using I'm sorry I'm using like debater high school debater terms yeah, here yeah, yeah. but how are you kind of weighing it such that in this particular scenario their their views aren't as significant or don't matter as much to how we should think about the founding as a whole First of all, it's a great question. Second of all, let me say, of course, Madison's very important. Of course, Jefferson and Washington, these guys are more important than almost anyone. What we have to recognize, though, is usually they're involved in the production of documents, and these documents are a production of a community. Let me give you the most obvious obvious example. Thomas Jefferson indisputably drafted the Declaration of Independence, and we know that Jefferson is a heretic. And so this has led some pretty prominent political scientists and historians to say, well, in the Declaration— I, I, I'm sorry to interrupt. Let's yeah. back up because you've used the word heretic twice, and sometimes yeah. that can be a pretty— polarizing or people define it differently. When you call Adams and Jefferson heretics, what do you mean? What did they do? (laughs) Yeah, no, no. Thank you for that. I appreciate the clarification. And again, I'm not trying to be judgmental. I'm just trying to use words as I think they're commonly used. So by an Orthodox Christian, I mean a Christian who adheres to basic Christian views as articulated, say, in the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, right? So most Christians throughout all time and space. If you deny elements of the creed, if you say Jesus Christ is not God incarnate, Mm -hmm. if you say the Trinity doesn't make sense because how can three be one and one be three? Those are heretical positions from the perspective of traditional Christian orthodoxy. Now, let me concede, they may end up being the true positions, right? They might be right, but from the position of traditional Christian um, theology, and here I include both Catholics and Protestants yeah. and Orthodox, they would say if you deny the divinity of Christ, it's a heretical view. Yeah. If you deny that God is, is spirit and say he's matter, that would be a heretical view. So just to tie the circle, Jefferson, Adams, and Franklin clearly deny some of these basic tenets mm-hmm. of Orthodox Christianity. And so they're heretics. Right. So returning to Jefferson and his authorship of the Declaration of Independence. Well, he drafts the Declaration of Independence for sure, but there's a committee of five, and they include the indisputably pious Roger Sherman. Mm -hmm. The committee of five changes up his draft in ways that Jefferson doesn't like. The draft then goes to Congress, and Congress changes up the, the Jefferson's draft in ways he doesn't like. And in fact, Congress inserts a number of references to the deity. And so I think if we're trying to understand what did the founders meant when they wrote something like, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator, certain inalienable rights. Um, So some people will say, well, that obviously is a reference to nature. 
Hmm. Well, it might have been for Thomas Jefferson. Let me concede that. But for the other 55 plus men in that Congress at that time, no, they're thinking the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. If you were to walk up to them and say, what did you mean by creator? They would look at you like you're crazy, right? Yeah. Remember, almost 100% of Americans of European descent are, 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 are Christians, and there's no reason to believe they're, they're deists or other stripes of Christians. And so they would have said, um, obviously, the kind of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, if they felt it necessary mm-hmm. to be so um, so clear. Let me give you another example. Say the, um, well, first of all, why would Thomas Jefferson's views not matter with respect to the First Amendment? He was not a part of Congress that drafted the First Amendment. Mm. He was not a part of the legislatures that ratified that commitment, that, that, that amendment. Um, sometimes people say, well, he drafted the Virginia Statute for Religious Liberty, which is true. But there's actually precious little evidence that that document had much influence on anyone involved in drafting the, the First Amendment, perhaps with the exception of James Madison. If you look at the first federal Congress, where, which produced the Bill of Rights, Madison was a, a, an advocate of it. He proposed a number of possible amendments. The one he said was the most important one of all that would have been restrictions on the ability of states to limit freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of press. You know that one, right? <laughs> it never became, it, yeah. it, it was never added. It was rejected. Yeah. Every draft that he proposed was changed in important ways. How was it changed? Well, because you had committees and you had committees, including one delegate from each state, and they included things and they cut things out. Um, He had a wonderful little provision in what would have become the Second Amendment to ensure that no one could be compelled to serve in the military if he had religious objections to doing so. I think that's a great little addition to the Second Amendment. It was cut. And so, again, I want to suggest if we want to understand, if we're seriously interested in an original understanding of what the First Amendment requires, Mm -hmm. we can't just look to James Madison, and especially we can't just look to a document like the Detachment Memorandum, which is drafted decades after the First Amendment, where Madison, who himself as president, issued four calls for prayer in this Detachment Memorandum. He said, well, maybe a president shouldn't do that. Mm. Okay, so maybe Madison changed his mind. Maybe Madison all along thought the president shouldn't call for prayer, but really almost no one else in this generation thought that. So mm. again, I think you have to look at even critically important founders like Washington and Jefferson and Madison um, as part of communities. And it's just simply bad history to try to read any particular document except for a document they wrote themselves. Um, but I'm talking about the Declaration, the First Amendment, the Constitution, um, through the eyes of any one founder. Yeah, I'm going to keep playing devil's advocate here, and I'm sorry if it's going to no, get a little... No, please do, please do. <laughs> but I think that in some sense, the pushback on this kind of thing, there, there's a sense broadly, like the system is rigged, right? People say that about a lot of scenarios. I need not list them all. But I think when certain Christian groups think about the founding, um, there's a feeling like, oh, the system is rigged against us, and it goes back all the way to the beginning where, you know, there were so many of us in the country, nearly 100% of us, and yet there was somehow an underrepresentation or, or our interests weren't being properly represented when these documents were being put together. How would you, I mean, beyond freedom of religion, which I think some people interpret as like, I'm just staying out of it, did the founders do anything or what kind of protections were there to actually protect religious people and positively help them rather than just staying out of it? 
Yeah, no, thank you for that question. And I guess I would like, when I think about religious liberty, I don't think about it as protecting any particular interest, right? So yeah. I think the founders had a very robust understanding of religious liberty. They understood that it must protect all citizens. One of the greatest evidences of this is Article 6 prohibits religious tests for office. Yeah. Most states had religious tests. Some you had to be a Christian, some you had to be a Trinitarian Christian. The, um, the, the founders from Philadelphia said, no, no religious test at all. And the ratification debates, um, this came up as an issue. People said, oh, my goodness, a Jew or a Muslim or even an atheist could hold office under this new constitution. The Federalists had to say, yes, that's right, they could. And yet they would oftentimes go on to say, but it will never happen. Don't <laughs> worry about it. And, of course, in an era where 98 percent are Protestant, 2 percent are Roman Catholics, there's about 2,500 Jews in America. It didn't seem very likely. My favorite letter from this era is, is George Washington's letter to the Hebrew synagogue in Newport, Rhode Island, 1790. And he makes it crystal clear to this tiny Jewish minority that you have a natural right to worship God that is protected just as well as the right of any Protestant or Catholic in the United States of America. And so I think, yeah, these protections were put in place. We have the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. Congress shall make no law respecting establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. I think both are primarily concerned with the protection of religious liberty. In the states, these things are being hashed out. We're adding um, protections for religious liberty in every state constitution or in a few cases statutes. Oftentimes, religious minorities are singled out for protection. Let me just give you one example. Mm -hmm. The U.S. Constitution and the one oath that's written out, the Article 2 oath for president, the person taking this oath must solemnly swear or affirm. What's that doing there? That's to accommodate the tiny handful of Christians who have religious objections to saying oaths. Quakers, most notably, brethren, uh, a few other tiny groups at this point. And so there's a recognition that the religious liberty of all Americans must be protected. Now, America did not always live up to this. And I document, in fact, the profound anti-Catholic mm. animus that we saw in the 19th and 20th century. Um, but still, I think the seeds were plant planted in the late 18th century for protection of all Americans to be able to worship God according to the dictates of conscience and act upon those convictions whenever possible. Mm. And do you think that, I mean, I think that there's a concern that there's sort of a special protection for secularism, and now we live in like a super secularist country. Um, and a lot of Christians feel that that's, that's a problem. That's one of the, you know, the reasons for our cultural decline and why there, there are so many kind of deep cultural fights and issues right now is there's a religious consensus that was broken. Um, I mean, I, I don't know if the founders could have envisioned necessarily a country that was completely secular. But do you think that there's anything in the founding that responds to that or that could have you know, prepared us for that? Yeah, in fact, I think the opposite is true. And I say this as someone who advocates for the, the protection of all convictions, yeah. religious or non-religious. But if you look at the provisions in the state laws, if you look at what Madison proposed for the Second Amendment, it is only religious pacifists who are protected. So if you're an atheist pacifist, you would not be protected oh, by any state law or the U.S. Constitution. Believe it or not, to this day, 
the um, Congress protects only the convictions of religious pacifists. You have to be a religious mm-hmm. pacifist in order to be given an exemption from, from the draft. Now, the U.S. Supreme Court, through a very slippery set of statutory interpretation cases in the 1960s, attempted to expand what it understood religion to mean. But to this day, the U.S. Code only protects religious Pacifist. And I've oftentimes argued it should do more than that. I would say anyone who is a, is a, a convicted pacifist should be given the ability to do alternative military service. So I, I'm not really denying the premise of your questions. I do mm. think some Christians think that somehow the system is biased against them. <laughs> that came about, I think, because of this rise of a notion of, of a strict separation of mm. church and state, a separation of church and state that requires World War One era memorials in the shape of a cross to be torn down, mm. that requires monuments of the Ten Commandments on state house grounds to be torn down. We see these arguments made all the time, especially in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Uh, but these are very ahistorical arguments, as I argue in this book, Proclaim Liberty Throughout All the Land. Yeah, absolutely. I want to, we, we've talked about the, you know, kind of founder, deist, Anglican crowd. You mentioned that most of the country was Calvinist. Let's talk about the Puritans a little bit. I've always had a soft spot for the Puritans, and I love the way that you discuss them in your book. Um, And I think your book draws a lot kind of on, I I love the way Tocqueville discusses the Puritans, and your book seems to really parallel kind of the emphasis on the way that the Puritans actually in a lot of ways did emphasize liberty and democracy. Can you talk a little bit about that? I'm trying to partake in this project of reclaiming the word Puritanism. (laughs) Yeah, and you're right. So... Pretty much all Americans well into the 19th century, into the 19th century, had a high view of the Puritans. Um, It's only Daniel Webster, Alexis de Tocqueville. In the mid-19th century, he started getting works like The Scarlet Letter, um, later The Crucible, and people describing the Puritans as, you know, mean-spirited folks who were afraid that someone was having fun, someone was having fun somewhere. And so, yeah, you have an image of the Puritans that arose as as mean-spirited theocrats. And what I attempt to show by placing them in context, first of all, there is no one in the 17th century that does not think that the civil ruler should not support um, their understanding of true religion, be that Mm. Catholicism or some version of of Protestantism. So they absolutely are are not unusual in, say, banning certain religious dissenters, in the Puritans' case, Catholics and Quakers, They certainly aren't unusual in having established churches where everyone is taxed to support the favored view of Christianity. Um, What what I argue is that they were really distinctive in some ways. They created the most Republican institutions the world had ever seen. Um, They believed that civil authority should be strictly limited as a matter of law. And so the Massachusetts Body of Liberties lays out um, a number of protections that we later find in the U.S. Bill of Rights. Suffrage is expanded Mm -hmm. tremendously. Yes, it's limited to white males, but don't get mad at the Puritans because of that. Because (laughs) nowhere. It's not as if women were voting anywhere, right? And a heck of a lot more white males could vote in Massachusetts Bay than could anywhere throughout the world and and, and throughout time. If you go back to ancient Mm -hmm. Greece, of course, almost no. No one, no one could vote. Uh, many of their laws are very humane, laws against um, animal cruelty. I point out they, they do have capital laws that seem very harsh, but in fact, far fewer crimes are punishable by death than were punishable by death in England, and a heck of a lot fewer people were actually put to death. So some of the Puritan laws, you could be put to death if you committed adultery, but throughout all of New England's history, only three people were put to death 
for mm-hmm. committing adultery. You could be put to death if you are an incorrigible juvenile delinquent, which just sounds crazy to us. <laughs> and yet literally zero people were put to death for doing that. So, again, here it's important to move beyond mm-hmm. the, 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 the printed statute to see, okay, how do these folks actually live? Um, they, they lived well. They, they loved alcohol. They never were um, puritanical, as we might say, with respect to sex. They wore brightly colored clothes. They had all sorts of festivities. And so I try to rehabilitate the Puritans mm-hmm. from our modern caricatures of them. So what is the the relevance of this, I guess, to the founding? Because to my knowledge, I don't think there were any, I mean, I guess the Puritan movement was sort of before the founding anyway. But, um, but I mean, was it that that was directly influential on the founders or just that it sort of happened to mesh well together, that the, the system implemented by the Constitution worked really well with what had previously existed? Or was there like a direct influence? Yes, I I argue in my book, Roger Sherman and the Creation of the American Republic, that I do think the Reformed or the Calvinist Mm. tradition of political reflection was very, very important um, in New England. And then it went on to have an outsized importance in the American founding. Let me take a big step back to the Reformation and remind your your listeners of some key Protestant doctrines. Sola Scriptura. Mm-hmm. All truth that we need with respect to how to live our lives and worship God is found in the Bible. The priesthood of all believers, all of us as individuals need to be reading the Bible for ourselves and making decisions about it for ourselves. We well, put these two together. And one of the things you see is within these especially most Protestant societies, but especially Calvinist or Reformed, you see skyrocketing literacy rates and you see many um, Protestant denominations becoming very flat, congregationalism. You have the men in the congregation coming together to debate among themselves who the next pastor should be. And should we get rid of um, Joe Smith, who's the current pastor, right? Very, very democratic. As I've, I, I've suggested already, I think this spills over into the civic arrangements in New England. Um, these folks are covenanting together to create townships, having elections every six months. In Connecticut, literally every important official from the government on down is elected by a, a very um, wide swatch of, of males. And I keep saying males because it's the case. But again, nowhere else are, are women voting. And so people in America, especially in New England and the mid-Atlantic states, get used to governing themselves. And so when they um, see parliament begin beginning to take steps in 1764, 1765 that seem to interfere with this, they react in a way that many British colonies, in England, of course, had something like 50 colonies throughout the world. Most colonies didn't bat an eye, but in New England, they sure did. Let me mention as well the Protestant um, resistance theory was mm-hmm. developed in a way that Roman Catholics were, you know, John of Salisbury kind of toyed around with this idea that tyrants could be killed. This never really went much of anywhere within Roman Catholicism in this era. Protestants took it and ran with it. So John <laughs> Calvin and his institutes, I think it's crystal clear, inferior magistrates may resist a superior magistrate who mm-hmm. becomes tyrannical. But um, John Knox up in Scotland is going beyond that, even as Calvin is still alive. And very rapidly you get this notion that not only may tyrants be resisted if the inferior magistrates don't resist them, the people themselves not only can, but they have a duty to resist tyrants. And this is something mm-hmm. you have within the reform tradition that you don't really have in most other Christian traditions and certainly not in other religions throughout the world. So, yeah, I think the reformed influence very important. Of course, there are a variety of streams. You have Enlightenment thought, classical republicanism, the Scottish school of moral sense. And so I'm not saying it explains everything, but I am saying it's a very important uh, factor if we want to understand the American founding. 
Yeah, super interesting. And I think leads really well to uh, one other topic that I really want to get your thoughts on, um, which is that, integ- you know, the integralist movement, which I know you and I have chatted about and is sort of a hot topic right now. Um, but these people who basically think that America was founded kind of on Protestant principles and for Protestants. Um, and I think it stems from kind of a, how does America actually make space for Catholics if it was in, you know made by Protestants? As you mentioned, it's like 98% of the people involved in the founding were Protestant. Um, and a lot of the religious liberty, I think there have been arguments that it was kind of envisioned as, as a Protestant religious liberty. And the integralist response is kind of wacky because it sort of takes it and turns it around. And a lot of times they like claim old laws that were meant as anti-Catholic is like, we're going to use this to bash Protestants, which doesn't make a ton of sense to me. I'll put my cards on the table. But what are your thoughts? I mean, how Protestant is America in, in its founding? Like, does that impact people of other religions who weren't involved kind of in the original social contract when we originally became a country? Yeah. So I think this is a useful observation. I'm going to address it maybe in a slightly, um, <laughs> take a slightly different angle. So I think what you see going on in the late 18th century is the commitment that religious liberty must be robustly com- protected. This mm. is a religious liberty of individuals, to be sure, but also of communities, certainly of churches, right? So one of the great examples of this is in Virginia, but ironically not with the Virginia Statute for Religious Liberty, which is 17, 1786. But 1787, the Virginia General Assembly said, we're going to get out of the business of telling the Anglican Church how to govern itself. We'll let the church make up its mind in this area. Um, when the Presbyterians revised the uh, Westminster Catechism in 1788, I think it was, these are American Presbyterians, they removed the civil state from having any role in calling church synods. And so this is a very healthy protection of religious institutions, I would suggest. Uh, most famously, the First Amendment says, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. Um, this means what it says. I've argued mm-hmm. elsewhere. We aren't going to have a national church. We aren't going to have a government creating a church, governing the church. We aren't going to have a situation like you have in England to the present day where the king is the head of the Church of England. Mm-hmm. And so this is creating institutional freedom for the church and for individuals. Now, I think this, this this should protect Catholics just as well as Protestants. In the 19th century, to be sure, and I document this, of course, in the book, as you know, we have this rise of, of anti-Catholicism and a number of horrendous actions yeah. that are taken against Catholics. And we could talk about that if you would like. But let me suggest what I really don't like about both the integralist and the the open Christian nationalists, people like Stephen yeah. Wolf, who both think basically the American founding was prof- was absolutely flawed. And what we need to do is get the government back in the business of running the church. We need to have an established church right. that is run by the government and dissenters will be punished by the government and everyone will be taxed to support this church. I think that's a horrendous idea, whether it's from the Protestant, whatever, or the Catholic, whatever, ever, right? Yeah. Um, I think the founders were very wise in these choices, and their, 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 their approach benefits everyone. It benefits Protestants, Catholics, but also benefits Jews and Muslims and Hindus and Baha'i and on and on you go. So the founders are far superior to either the Catholic integralist or these Christian nationalists on this issue. Yeah, let's uh, let's finish, start finishing off here. Talk to me about your upcoming project on Christian nationalism. If I, Annika, being both a Christian and someone who loves America, 
why the name Christian nationalist sounds to me at least relatively innocuous, though people usually use it kind of as a slur. What is it? Why Why are you working on it? I'm excited. I think you're kind of on a cutting edge here. <laughs> yeah, thank you. So my project this year at the Madison program is to write a book on Christian nationalism. I became interested in these debates on January 6, 2021. I'm flying home from a speaking engagement. I get a call mm-hmm. from a reporter and she said, can you please comment on the Christian symbols among the riders at the U.S. Capitol building? And this is the first I'd heard of this. And so I said, sure, send them my way. And as, as I was waiting for them, I, I I scrolled through the footage of these riots, and they're horrendous riots, and they should not be excused in any way. But what I saw was a sea of American flags, a sea of MAGA hats, a sea of Trump as our president flags, and almost no Christian symbols. Eventually, she sent me four symbols, two of which were not from anywhere close to the riot. They were in this little rally that was held ahead of time, and one was a crazy goth guy holding a Bible in front of the rioters. And then a um, the Pine Street, Pine State flag, which has the words an appeal to heaven on it. This is a revolutionary era war flag. Mm. And so, you know, it might just be because it's the American Revolution and appeal to heaven sounds Christian, but also could, could come from John Locke's second treatise. And so mm. I, I cautioned the reporter. I said, you might want to be careful with this narrative that Christian nationalists have attacked the U.S. Capitol building. She ignored me. And the next day her story came out and so many other stories. Christian nationalists have attacked the Capitol. And so this just made me suspicious. And so I started diving into the literature. No one in America is calling himself or herself a Christian nationalist before 2006. Beginning in 2006, you have a steady stream of books by critics saying that that there is a horrible group out there, um, a group of theocrats who want to take over America and persecute everyone except for white Christian males. And these folks are Christian nationalists. And I just thought this doesn't seem very persuasive. And so I started reading this literature and I found it to be very unpersuasive. Um, And so I started critiquing it. I've published a number of pieces that are available online critiquing it. But then, of course, (laughs) in 2022, you had Christians who thought it was a good idea to call themselves Christian nationalists. So Marjorie Taylor Greene, Stephen Wolf, Torben Isker. And so now I have to contend with these folks. I think what they're advocating to the extent to which they're advocating anything systematically, and I'm not sure Marjorie Taylor Greene is, but Stephen Wolf is, I think it's nutty. And I've been very critical of that. So basically, I'm critical of everyone. I'm critical of the (laughs) critics. No one is spared. No No one is spared. No one is spared. (laughs) And let me just make it clear. I don't like Christian nationalism in any of its manifestations that I've ever seen. Now, a few people have said, well, look, I prefer the international order of nation states as opposed to globalism or failed states. And so therefore, I'm a a nationalist. And I would prefer nations to be informed by Christian morality rather than pagan morality or Islamic morality. And so therefore, I'm a Christian nationalist. I suppose that's a kind of tame version of Christian nationalism, mm. but I just think it's imprudent to accept that label after it's been used by for so many years as simply mm. a slur. So I would much prefer to talk about myself as a Christian patriot, as someone right. who loves his country, but he does so in an inordinate way, not in an inordinate way. Yeah, I guess what I would add is looking at the history of religion, it's kind of shocking how many labels that people use regularly now began as slurs. I mean, outside of religion, famously, like the Democrat donkey was originally a slur. But even, I mean, words like atheists, that was a a slur in ancient Greek that then sort of became a regular word. And 
Yeah, I think polytheist, same thing. So Yeah, Puritans yeah, and Quakers. Puritan. I think that's exactly right. It's a common trajectory for terms. It, it can happen. The analogy I kind of like is the analogy of the fasces, this ancient yeah. Roman symbol of the, the, the rods bound with the ribbon with the little axe. You see this all over the place in Washington, D.C., prior to World War II. Mm. You see it on the back of the Mercury dime. And yet... The fasces, of course, became associated with fascism and Mussolini, and so that completely fell off the radar with the Second World War. And I would say it would just be insane to try to rehabilitate right. the fasces as right. a symbol for law and order, which is what it meant for millennia. But it's been ruined. And I yeah. think in the same way, the phrase Christian nationalism has been ruined. So just let it let it alone. <laughs> and really, I would say try to avoid labels at all. Let's just go yeah. out there and advocate for what we believe in. Um, religious liberty is very important to me. So I'm going to advocate for religious liberty for all, for the most um, robust understanding of religious liberty that applies to all Americans, regardless of faith. And... Um, Engage me on those arguments and don't just try to dismiss me as a Christian nationalist, which some people have done, even though I'm critical of it <laughs> in every manifestation. People will really say anything rather than engage with an argument. So <laughs> I very much appreciate you coming. It was a super interesting discussion. Everyone should absolutely check out your book, Proclaim Liberty Throughout All the Land. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Annika. Well, there you have it, Madisonians. Mark David Hall on Proclaim Liberty Throughout All the Land, the link to which is in the show notes, so it's hot off the presses. Make sure to go and check it out. We're so excited about his achievement and hope that you enjoyed this discussion. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, remember to like, comment, and subscribe. You can find us on social media, on Twitter at Madison Program, also on Instagram and on Facebook, and our website, jmp.princeton.edu, is a great resource you can sign up for our mailing list there. You can see all of our old recorded lectures and all of our upcoming events if you're here in the New Jersey area. So please do go check it out. There's some really great stuff there. And we hope to see you next time here on Madison's Notes. <laughs>